Hello and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. With Kaylin and Elena. How are you? I'm good, honey. How are you? I'm good. It was. It's been a. It's been a week. You had a rough one. Yeah, I. There was a lot going on. Today's been a pretty good day so far. I've been in like this weird middle ground to where like I'm not really in a good mood, but I'm not like in a bad mood, and things <laughs> that would normally piss me off didn't piss me off. So I'm just like. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, better than being in a bad mood and cranky all the time. So. Yeah, <laughs> true. Although I feel that's like how I live a, my life. So right, there was a lot of things that happened yesterday that we'll talk about later. Okay. But, um, I think that I'm just like at this point like emotionally drained, mm-hmm. and so today is just like a blah. Oh, I'm sorry. Not in like a bad way. I'm not like okay, angry good. about anything or like annoyed or. It's just like all right. Yeah, that's where I am. Yeah, I like it. Strange. <laughs> okay, well. I have a new conspiracy theory. Ooh, I love conspiracy theories. That we should not allow any more Germans to immigrate to this country. I mean, coming from you, that says a lot. (laughs) Because I am on my third German immigrant who also turns out to be a serial killer. Jesus. Yeah, maybe you're right. I might be honest. And I'm not even like trying to find this stuff. (laughs) It's just coming up. So I'm thinking there's more out there. Probably. Yeah. So my case this week. So I started with the Bloody Benders of Kansas. Yep. Where we had not one, but two German immigrants. And then, you know, a woman who was like a first generation, right? Yeah. Then we had Harry Powers, who was the Bluebird of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And today we have Anna Maria Hahn of Ohio. Fun. I'm excited. So I think you're going to like this case. You're really going to like the end of this case. Sweet. Because the end of my case is not very fun. No. Granted, okay, so spoiler alert, uh, we (laughs) cheated this week. So normally, as most of you know, if you've been here for a while, you know that we normally pick our cases and we try not to look them up, each other's up, so that it's kind of like a surprise and it's a fun thing. Well, we didn't do that (laughs) today. (laughs) Um, I slacked a lot and... So, Elena, help me out with the case. I did. Granted, I did choose the case, and I knew of the case. She just wrote all my notes down. Yeah. I just did Kaylin's homework is exactly. basically what I did. Exactly. So, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But, yeah. yeah, we cheated a little bit this week. That's but right. I don't know anything about your case. Okay, good. So, so yeah. that's good. And I wish I should have recorded my reaction. Well, I sent you texts about my reactions to your case. Yeah. So. And I will... Re- recreate them. <laughs> Let's see how good when of an we actor That's you right. are here. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So my case starts, as I said, with Anna Maria Hahn. She was born on the 7th of July in 1906 in Bavaria, which is the southern state of Germany. And she was way down south. So her town was like a kilometer from the Austrian border. Okay. And... Ironically enough, Adolf Hitler was born on the Austrian side of the border, very, very close to Bavaria. So maybe there's something about this region, too, that maybe. has something to do with this. So she it's also a very, very Catholic region, okay. uh, Bavaria is. And um, in fact, that the Pope before our current one um, was from Bavaria as well. And that explains why she is the youngest of... 12 children. Jesus. Yes. I feel like every time that you have a case, 
you always find one that with a lot of children in it, <laughs> and the number just continues to increase. Maybe. <laughs> just I... wait till the Duggars, man. Can you imagine? <laughs> There, There's yeah. some serial killers in the making. Trust me. There has to be. There <laughs> so. cannot be that many children and grandchildren in and one that family. Freak show of a family too. I mean, they're freaks. I'm sorry. Nuts. Yeah. There are a couple of them that seem to be more normal. Well, there was than always most. the whole. There was already like the big sex scandal with uh-huh. the one the abusing oldest the brother. sisters, yeah. and you know, of course, they sweep that under the rug. So yeah, yeah of course, they not did. a fan of them. But anyway. So there are eight boys, four girls in this family. Now, by the time that Anna Maria is born, three of her siblings have already died. And it didn't say how, but I mean, I'm just assuming probably childhood disease. You know, I mean, yeah. that would not be unheard of at this time. And then she, two more are going to die during World War One, okay. which, again, it was very hard to find a German family that didn't have some sort of loss during World War One. So, um, growing up as a child, she's very, very sickly. Um, she spent several months in the hospital at one point and almost died from blood poisoning. And that also would kind of explain why her family would have spoiled her, as it was said that she was. She never finished school. And so, you know... This was a little bit frustrating to me because the sources that I looked at just said it, well, she never finished high school. Well, in Germany, that's a very different thing because they have a tracked system, and especially when she was growing up, it was a very stringently tracked system. So depending on testing, you went to a different type of school anyway. Does that make sense? And I don't know. I have no idea like which, if she was going to the type of school where she could have continued to university, if she was going to one of the lower level ones. Gotcha. Yeah. But in any case, she, um, she never finished. She was way more interested in partying, which by the time that she's a teenager, this is the 1920s. And, you know, Germany really, during what that period of time, what's known as the Weimar Republic, was a lot like the United States with the Roaring Twenties and, you know, everybody's partying and drinking and having fun. And there was definitely this huge reaction against, you know, all the privations of World War One and everything that had happened there. So, um, but anyway, her parents are frustrated with her. As most would be in that situation. Because they do see her as a wild child. And she had an older sister who was living in Holland at the time, married and settled down. So they're hoping to, you know, straighten her out. So they send her to live with her sister for a time. That doesn't really work out too well because Anna ends up pregnant. Oh. (laughs) Which, of course, was especially scandalous. I mean, even though this is the Roaring Twenties and things, still getting pregnant out of wedlock. Yeah. And she's young here. She's Yeah, she's in her teens, probably. I um, Let me see. So I said she was born, what, 1906? Yes. And her son is born in 1925. So, yeah, she'd be, what, 19? Yeah. So, anyway, um, she claims that the person she had an affair with was a doctor from Vienna. And she does give a name, but there's no records at all of this person. So probably she's lying. Yeah. And she probably didn't even know, let's be honest. Like, yeah. You know, she's out there partying. She's having a good time. She probably doesn't even know who the baby's daddy is. So it's 
Uh, on May 31st, 1925, her son Oscar is born. And of course, by that time, she had returned home, is living with her parents, and she's back in this small, very Catholic town. So of course, you know, people are whispering, her reputation is ruined, you know, <laughs> slut shaming is not just a thing back then, it's actively encouraged. So life can't have been too fun for her. Yeah. So her parents decide that they are going to keep her son with them. So he'll have a nice, stable family. And they're going to ship her off this time to the United States, where she has an aunt and uncle who are in their 70s already living in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And the other thing is, in the 1920s, immigration to America was pretty strict. There were a lot of quotas. This is the era in the 1920s and 30s. There were really strict quotas if you happen to be Jewish, which is why so many Jews end up dying during the Holocaust because America keeps saying, no, sorry, we don't want you. And even when they do apply for visas, they just, the paperwork gets lost or shuffled. And there's been a lot of really excellent historical documentation of that that's heartbreaking and infuriating at the same time yeah but in any case um anna is lucky enough to already have family in the united states she happens to not be jewish which is a lucky thing for her and so even with all of that though she has to wait until february 11th 1929 so nearly four years after she has her son even though they applied for the visa pretty quickly after his birth um, to, to board a ship that's bound for New York. And then from there, she'll continue on to Cincinnati. That's got to be terrible, though, because I couldn't imagine. I imagine it would be easier to leave your child and go to a completely different country on the other side of the world when he was just born mm -hmm. versus spending four years of his life with him. Mm -hmm. And then having to, like, uproot. And... Well, as we get a little bit more into Anna's character, <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't know how good a mother she could have been, nor how strong her bonds could have been with anyone. Okay. So, we'll so leave it So maybe not that. so hard for her. Maybe not so hard for okay. her, because she seems to have been a person who really did not have any true love or liking for anybody. Okay. She just, she definitely, her life story, as we're going to get into it here, is definitely of somebody who has some pretty, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't know, like just some, some real difficulties in viewing humans as humans rather than objects to be used to get what you want. Sounds like Cersei. Yes. Sorry, there we you were go. just talking about Game of Thrones. So yeah, it just, yeah. That was the first yes. thing that came to my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. So anyway, um, when she gets to Cincinnati, Cincinnati is one of those cities that has a very large German population, as many, many did in the United States. You know, German, German immigration has always been a huge part of the United States makeup from the time of Benjamin Franklin who was very, very worried that German might actually end up being the national language, that it would push out English hmm. um, up to this time. So 
In Cincinnati, there's lots of these beer gardens like you would, you know, find back home in Germany. And um, Anna decides that she needs a job. And who really needs training? Because she considers to herself to be just a lovely human. So she's going to become a living nurse. And that's how she'll earn her money. So she goes and she hangs out at these beer gardens and sings old Bavarian songs and ballads and charms all these old men who are hanging out there to get jobs. And the first one that hires her is a 71-year-old retired banker named Charles Oswald, which that's not a very German name, so mm -hmm. I'm not sure if he actually is German or if he just liked hanging out in these places. In any case, he's a retired banker and she works for him as an in-home nurse. And then he finds out that she was actually stealing stocks from him and transferring them into her name. She also stole $700. Now, here's where I got a little bit confused because the sources that I looked at claimed that at some point he found out about this, maybe there was like an implication. And yet she continued working for him. So I'm not sure if they meant much later down the road, mm -hmm. you, you know? So anyway, so she's she she's working for him. And actually, she's going to continue working for Charles Oswald, I think, for the next six years or so. Huh. So that's weird. Um, in any case, she takes these shares that she had transferred into her name, sells them, and then gives up nursing for a while to work as a chambermaid at a hotel. And it's while she's working there that she meets another German immigrant who is working as a telegraph operator, one of those jobs that no longer exists, named Philip Hahn. Okay. And after a pretty short courtship, because like we said, you know, she leaves Germany in February of 1929 mm -hmm. and she marries Philip Hahn in 1930. Okay. So this was all pretty fast. Yeah. And once they are married, she travels back to Germany to get now five-year-old Oscar and bring him to the United States to live with him and her, hus her and her husband. Okay. So, and again, how much of this was done out of some sort of maternal love or longing or maybe her parents were like, come get your kid. Like, I really don't know. So, we'll see. And later on, she does do one thing that makes me think possibly there was at least some sort of per, you know maternal responsibility on her part yeah. so um so she and philip marry they immediately start saving and they do manage to save enough money to buy two delicatessens and they move into a very large boarding house where they're renting some rooms okay okay now the boarding house is owned by another German man who is 62 years old. His name is Ernst Kohler. He's already ill when they move in. So Anna, of course, resumes her little nursing career. And shortly thereafter, uh, Mr. Kohler dies and the boarding house is left to Anna. Okay. Now, even at the time, there seems to have been some suspicion that despite his illness, perhaps he had been helped along to the grave. But still, 
his official cause of death was listed as throat cancer. Okay. And so things stopped. There was a doctor who was also renting some rooms in the boarding house, which worked out really well for Anna because she would go into his rooms and steal blank prescriptions from him. Oh, of course she would. Of course. Um, aside from nursing, she decides that the two delicatessens that they own, the boarding house, which they now have, so they're still you know getting rent income yeah. from other boarders, and her little nursing side gigs are not bringing in enough money. So she sets a small fire at one of the delis, and even though there's not much damage done, the insurance company pays out $300, which is a pretty decent sum of money in the 19, this would still be, this would be the early 1930s. So that's, that's you know, quite a sizable sum. And shortly thereafter, there are two more, two more fires at their house and she gets $2,000 for those. Jeez. And that is a huge sum of money. Yeah. So um, we're now up to 1933. Okay. It's the depths of the depression. So this is probably, 1933 is probably about as bad as it gets. Okay. I think during the depression, you know, it's it's pretty, pretty bleak. Um, that also happens to be the year my, my grandparents got married, by the way. Um, <laughs> they decide to sell the two delis. I'm sure just business was horrible or whatever. And they end up losing the house, the boarding house, because they couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. Which seemed very odd to me, because I thought, she got all this money, what's okay. she doing with it? Yeah. You know? And her husband had an income. They had the delis. You know, people are... So I don't know where she's spending Yeah, all this money. But anyway. That's weird. Yeah. Um, shortly after that, her aunt and uncle die. There doesn't seem to be anything nefarious at all about their deaths. Okay. I mean, obviously, they were well into their 70s when she got here. So, But they do leave her their house, which again... Maybe not too strange. I don't know that they had any other family here or anything like that. And in, so she has a house, They her family has a house again. And then again, shortly after Aunt Uncle's deaths, in August 14th of 1935, 77-year-old Charles Oswald, that first patient that she yeah. had, dies. And in his will, he leaves her everything but there's nothing left because she has stolen it all in the time she's been working for him. <laughs> Dumbass. Yes. Jesus Christ. Um, she tries at this point to get her husband to agree to taking out a $25,000 life insurance policy. And his response is, I'm fairly young, I'm healthy, that would just be a waste of money, money's already tight, and guess what? It's always a red flag when someone wants you to take out an insurance policy out of nowhere. It is always a red flag because that usually means they're going to kill you and take the money. So he gets really, really sick, even though he had refused to sign the life insurance policy. And his mother insists on taking him to the hospital, even though Anna's like, no, look, I got all this nursing experience. I'll take care of him. But mom's like, nope, he's going. And she takes him. 
He does survive this trip to the hospital. Good. But their marriage, which seems to have already been fairly volatile, falls apart and they separate. And now Anna is on her own with her son Oscar and needs money. So she speeds up her nursing practice. In June of 1936, she takes on an 81-year-old patient named George Heiss. And they're Germans. Okay. So beer is medicine, right? I yep. mean, <laughs> and she brings him a beer one day. And a fly happens to, I don't know if he'd spilled a drop or if it just, you know, gets on the edge of his cup, whatever. But this fly gets a little bit of his beer and immediately kills over dead. Oh my gosh. So George is like, hey, Anna, you drink some of this beer. And she's like, oh, no, no, I, I, you know, no, I, I can't do that. No, thank you. And, of course, he immediately fires her, but he never goes to the police. Why? Why not? Yeah. Uh, that's so, annoying. I know. So she then takes on another client named Albert Parker. He is 72 years old. He's a retired gardener. And by March 1937, he's dead. And lo and behold, leaves everything to her. How how is she tricking all of... Do these men not have other family? We'll talk about that in a minute. Because I'm really curious as to how she is either convincing them to leave her everything or is somehow manipulating things. We'll get there, okay? Okay. So... Um, cause I was wondering that too. And later on, I'll, I'll tell you Especially what my suspicion with like is. Her first, her first client, yeah. she wasn't working for him for a long time before he died. Correct. Right. So, and then even when he died, he's still, well, no, him. the first one, the Charles Oswald, she had been working with for like six years. Okay. But there are other clients that it's a very short period of time and everything's left to her. So. Okay. I'll get there. Okay. Now, this Albert Parker also had a neighbor, a woman named Mrs. Kuehler. And sweet little Anna strikes up a friendship with her and is so kind as to bring her ice cream now and again. The second time that she brings poor Mrs. Kuehler ice cream, Mrs. Kuehler gets incredibly ill, ends up in the hospital, and while she's there recovering, a bag of money and jewelry is stolen from her home. Jesus. So like I said, Anna's a woman, like she, she's going to do a lot of crime. Yeah. For sure. Anna moves on and then meets a man who is 68 years old named Jacob Wagner. And she takes a different tactic this time. She convinces him or tries to convince him that she is his long lost niece. He's pretty sure he doesn't have any long lost family, but despite that, he still lets her take care of him. And by June 5th, 1937, he's dead. He leaves her $17,000. Jesus. Yes. And on July 6th, 1937, so just a little bit more than a month later, another patient of hers, 67-year-old George Gesselman, dies and leaves Anna, Anna, sorry, 
$15,000. Glory, how are people not putting <laughs> these things together? Because within the space of, like I said, a month, she has made, what, $32,000, boom. And I mean, this is the 1930s. So I didn't do the calculation, but that has to be like an insane amount of money. Yeah. So I just don't understand how people are not putting two and two together. These puzzle pieces fit nicely together. Why won't, why, why don't yeah. you just? Well, and nobody really does until yet right around another month later, the 1st of August, 1937, when doctors not in Ohio, but over in Colorado Springs, Colorado, contact the local police about the recent death of a man there, 67-year-old George Obendorfer, who had been staying at a local hotel, fell ill, and was brought to their hospital. He died, and they were never, because, and the doctors just could not figure out exactly what was wrong with him, and you know or how to treat him they did know that he had two companions with him when he arrived in colorado the hotel at which he was staying had actually had also experienced the theft of around three hundred dollars in diamonds so the police visit the hotel why does a hotel have that much money worth of diamonds? Probably people who were staying there very often, what people used to do is you would, like usually there was like a hotel safe or something, or at least a okay. safe place, and they would put, people would give their valuables to be stored in this secure place. Okay, I guess that makes sense, because yeah. my hotel has like security, safety deposit boxes uh -huh. and stuff like that. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Yes. That was confusing. So when the police go to this hotel, they see on the hotel ledger and find out that Georgia checked in with a woman named Anna and her son. Because, you know, back then you had to sign the ledger yeah. as you checked in, all that stuff. So the police think, hmm, maybe this diamond theft and the death of George Oberndorfer may be connected. So they start to hit the local pawn shops to see if anyone had been in trying to sell diamonds. And of course, one of the pawn shop owners has a very clear recollection of a woman named Anna who had a boy with her trying to sell some diamonds. So the <clears throat> Colorado Springs police immediately put out a warrant for Anna's arrest. And because they know she's from Cincinnati, Ohio, because of the hotel ledger and mm -hmm. everything else, they also contact the Cincinnati police. Smart. At so, least someone's doing something. Okay. Right. Um, in the meantime, while the Colorado Springs police have been chasing down all of these leads, Anna had, in fact, returned to Cincinnati. And the police there go ahead and bring her in for questioning. Okay. The, at first, her story is, I don't know any George Oberndorfer. We have no idea who you're talking about. And the police are like, oh yeah, well, we have this hotel ledger that you signed, you signed in him and yourself and your son. And then her story changes to, oh no, see, like I met him on the train when I was traveling and he was Swiss. And so I felt sorry for him. So I just helped him when he was checking into the hotel. Hmm. Now, George Obendorfer 
did have family. He had three kids, and he had also just recently separated from his wife. And the kids and everybody else testify that he and Anna were dating, and that she had suggested the trip to Colorado by claiming that she owned a ranch there and she wanted George to come and look at it with her and to see it, to show it off. This just seems so elaborate. Yes. Well, this last case with George Opendorf is totally different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because she's not technically working for him as a nurse. They see, She seems to have actually been seducing him uh-huh. and in a way that she didn't with her other... Uh, clients, I guess. But Anna's, even though George's family and others say, no, they were dating, Anna continues to deny that they were dating and then claims, okay, yes, I knew him, but I just agreed to share a hotel room with him to save money. Which makes absolutely no sense all in the 1930s. But anyway. Yeah. In the meantime, the Colorado Springs corner Um, has done an autopsy, and they have found arsenic in George Orbendorfer's body. (sighs) So the Cincinnati police, of course, have been investigating her as well. They have done what, I don't know how nobody else had put this together, but they had, you know, see the string of deaths in her path. They order seven bodies to be exhumed from her past clients, and they find... Four different types of poison amongst them. Jesus. Yes. Of course, Anna still claims she's innocent. You know what? They're questioning her again. She's still claiming she's innocent. And the cops had, in the meantime, searched her home and found a ton of poison. Her ex-husband, Philip, also is brought in. And he tells the police that she had stolen those prescri- the blank prescription pages way back when they were living in the boarding house. He throws her under the bus, which I also was like, why hadn't he said anything before? Yeah. Because he obviously knew. Her son Oscar confirms uh, that, you know, the trip to Colorado was basically his mom's idea, that they had, in fact, been traveling together the whole time, and that George had gotten sick on the train after Anna gave him something to drink mm. for the first time. Um, so then Colorado wants to bring her back to put her on trial, but Ohio's like, no, we got this. So yeah. she's put on trial in Ohio. She's only arrested, though, for the murder of Jacob Wagner. And I'm not sure why that is, but they arrest her on the 10th of August, 1937. Her trial begins on the 11th of October, 1937. So as you like it to go. Nice and quick. Yeah. Here's what I thought was really interesting. There were 11 women on her jury and only one man. And I found that really interesting, you know, for the time period that we're talking about Mm -hmm. and everything. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, The whole time that, and of course, this is one of those trials that is all over the media. There's a whole lot of, you know, newspaper articles being published about it. She's allowed, even though she's being held in jail and maintaining her innocence, 
she's allowed to give interviews to a whole bunch of different reporters and they all come in and interview her and she gives these long you know sad interviews about how she would take such good care of these men and hold their hands while they were dying and you know that she had just dedicated her life to others and when her trial ends it takes this jury two hours to find her guilty that's so fast and to sentence her to the electric chair that's so fast because i don't know and many some of you may not know this but the majority the first at least hour or so of a deliberation of the jury is really just reading instructions so so that went that's fast. fast yeah and nobody was buying any of her stories good because like i said all 11 you know and it's 11 women so but they have no sympathy for her they're sending her to the electric chair good and of course she, she though keeps claiming nope i'm innocent i'm innocent i'm innocent um her lawyers do um start the appeal process it goes all the way up to the united states supreme court damn yes however even the united states supreme court says mm, no you were given a fair trial evidence is you killed these people bye-bye and you stole all their money yes so anna becomes only the second woman to be executed by the state of Ohio, and she becomes the first to be electrocuted in the electric chair. And on the 7th of December of 1938, at the age of 32, she, she is executed. But before her execution, as she's being taken away, she wrote four letters that she gave to her lawyer, okay? She's then taken to be electrocuted and it was kind of sad reading <laughs> reading the the descriptions because apparently she lost it and she couldn't walk on her own power the guards basically had to take her in she was pleading with the warden not to kill her and to think of her son and apparently even the warden had tears running down his cheeks but but see that's really hard because she killed so many people and she was so callous and cold mm -hmm. about it oh and the one thing i forgot to bring up i'm sorry during the trial that i told you i was going to come back to so during the trial they you know i told you like you know so the the words of philip her ex-husband and her son of course were were part of the evidence and they had like the organs that had been exhumed from many of her victims yeah where the poison Yeesh. yeah poison was found and they had a number of handwriting experts uh so it was a so was it all forged they so didn't even the wills were very likely forged yeah it wasn't a case of her you know charming these men into leaving yeah. or everything she was forging the wills that doesn't make sense on why she would forge the first dude's will, her first patient, because well, she stole everything. She didn't anyway. realize that she'd stolen everything. Don't so ask. the will was just like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that first will was just, you know, I leave everything, you know, all my earthly possessions. She didn't know everything that was there. She just kept pilfering and stealing without, until re yeah, left. until realizing that, well, it's all gone. Yeah. Dumbass. So, yeah. Um, and so those, right after she was executed, her lawyer announced that he was going to sell those four letters to a newspaper. 
And she had already cut a deal apparently. So the deal was she had cut this deal with a, a newspaper that she would basically write everything out, which is I'm how I'm assuming they know a lot more about what all, happened. Yeah, yeah, all the murders I've just talked about. And so the newspaper bought the letters and they apparently had promised her that they would pay for her son's education. And I that mean... was part of the deal. So the newspaper buys the four letters. Over two days, they print all of the contents of the letters. And her son, Oscar, who at the time was 12, was put with a foster family somewhere. And the newspaper apparently did live up to their end of the bargain, you know, to finance everything. How all this is known, I'm not sure, because I tried finding some information about her son and I could find nothing, except that he served in the Navy for the United States during World War II. Huh, that's but it? That was all I could find. Strange. Mm -hmm. But then again, I guess it's not completely strange for a child or a relative of a serial killer like this to mm -hmm. kind of drop off the face of the earth because they don't want to be especially back then yeah especially you know. because like he was maybe not involved maybe too strong of a word but he was there for everything right and so although he seems to have been completely you know innocent i you know well, yeah yeah, that, yeah that's why i said yeah, involved yeah. was a strong word he was right. just there witnessing everything yeah. so i feel like i if i were in his shoes I probably wouldn't want that either. I also feel like I would almost feel guilty if I were her son. Being be, being the fact that one, I he didn't say anything. And two, her murdering a bunch of people is what sent him to... That paid for right. his education. Like yeah. I, I feel like I would have so much guilt well, about and that. Back that if we we forget to just how, how drenched in shame American culture was for so long too. So there would have been a lot of shame for him just in being related to a murderer, mm -hmm. even though he had nothing to do with it. But just like I said, that that association would have been enough to damn yeah. him in many, many people's eyes. So I'm sure that's part of it as well. And I feel like that's still a big thing nowadays. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe less now, but like if you go back even to like the 70s, 80s, oh, and yeah. well into like the early 2000s, I feel like it was still very much a shameful thing to be related to somebody right. Who was a murderer? Yes. And I think that's why you find, we've mentioned before, you know, some of the relatives of killers who have come forward and spoken out and been more vocal. And I think it's good for us to realize that in many cases, those families have suffered, you know, as yeah. horribly as well, because people do paint them all with the same brush or... Also, that sense of betrayal of finding out yeah. that a parent or a loved one or whatever, you know, had committed these heinous crimes. Yeah. So, and I think there's something positive about that, that we can extend some sympathy to those people, you know, on the other side of the aisle as well. Yeah. So, although sometimes they don't deserve it. You and I, I know, are both thinking of... A very specific case where, uh -huh. like, mm, no, sorry. Speaking of, I have a little bit of exciting. Ooh. Maybe not exciting, but 
Um, we're talking about the Scott Riggs case, if any of you are curious. Yes. So, I have a little birdie who talked to someone very, 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 very close to this case. And my little birdie told me that she was told that the trial is supposed to start very soon. Well, first of all, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, yes, I agree. And secondly, they still have not... Announced why. Announced why they postponed it in the first place. And there has been zero information, which, um, like I said, I'm very torn. This is a small town. I get it. But I don't know how they're keeping some of this stuff as quiet as they are. I'm curious if... It's because of the fact that ISP fucked up the first time and now they don't want to risk losing any more evidence. And so they're kind of just like, we're done talking about it until the trial's here. And I can see that. I really can. Because they, they did. They fucked up. Is that what happened? I, I'm pretty sure we talked about it a little bit before. We did a little, but I was still unclear. There were... There was were it certain... inadmissible now? I mean... I don't know. Okay. So all I know... It, from what I was told is there was evidence that was improperly labeled or mislabeled or things like that that made it made them not be able to use this certain evidence in court. So what I understood was that ISP had to go back and retest all of their evidence and do all of the testing through it again so they can properly label everything so then it can be used in court, if I understand correctly. Okay. But it still do, that still doesn't explain why it was postponed this second time because mm -hmm. that was because of, that was what caused that was the, the mistrial, first, right? And then it was supposed to start again on June sixth, and it got postponed. But nobody knows why it got postponed. Okay, well we'll see. We'll see. We'll see it happens. I'll tell I'll tell you who said that when we turn this off. Okay, I, <laughs> I can't tell you guys. I'm sorry. All right, so that sounds good. So anyway, we're going back to, to Ohio. Ohio. And like I said, I already know some about this case, but my brain is still spinning with that one. We did talk a little bit before we started recording, and there are some things that now you know that you didn't know. Right. So we'll, and I'm sure you'll bring more to I'm it, I'm sure too, I so. will. So we'll see. Yes. So check out the Facebook page. Email us at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, check us out on Instagram. I have been a total slacker on Twitter. Sorry. <laughs> But let us know your thoughts, and thanks for listening. See you next time.